When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Humans of Speedway podcast. I'm Ian Brannan, and as the title would suggest, not only are we speaking to stars from on the track in the series, but also some of the people who make up the Speedway community. And my next guest shares similar interests, really. He's Speedway author Jeff Scott, and around about 15 years ago, Jeff set himself the challenge of visiting every single track in the UK through a single season, travelling over 10,000 miles and taking in over 1,000 heats and documented the tale in his book, showered in shale since then he's made a similar journey following the speedway gp series across europe uh, as well as many other books looking into the history and people in speedway and he's also going to pick using all that knowledge his ultimate meeting as well what would be the ultimate track and who would be the riders from all of that vast experience welcome to humans of speedway jeff scott hello ian nice to uh, be on the show it's, it's great to have you here now you have completed the ultimate speedway road trip. Probably a lot of speedway fans have dreamt about doing this or had the idea in a pub one night. It'd be a great to go to all the different speedway tracks in the country and follow it for the whole season. You actually did it. How did it all come about? Sort of back in the mists of time, in the in the middle middle of the naughty, say two thousand and five. I went round to every single existing speedway track in the country at that point to sort of you know see how things worked uh obviously being a fan of speedway that was an exciting uh prospect to go looking at all the different clubs and tracks i also wanted to really look into what made speedway what it is i was really it's more a philosophical question about what is speedway what does it mean to people who are the people involved behind the scenes what do they get up to why do they go i mean something i would noticed from my own casual observation as being a fan is Lots of different people do lots of different tasks within Speedway, some of which don't appear overly glamorous, say, for example, like raking the track or running the turnstiles. And yet people seem to do that for years and years and years, which obviously gives them access to their local club. But at the same time, does seem to give them a level of involvement that leads them to appear sort of from the outside, um, sort of relatively content with life and the world. So a lot of people spend a lot of their time striving to find happiness or contentment through sort of romance, wealth, career, whatever it is. And yet down at the speedway track, some of which aren't overly prepossessing, it seems a whole series of people working voluntarily um, found a great deal of satisfaction in that. So I think that's sort of, that's one of the attractions of the speedway community, but that was what first got my curiosity, really. So... um, I kind of thought already that that would be the case at most tracks. But unless you go and see things for yourself, and while one swallow doesn't make a summer, you know, you do get a better perspective on things. Once I'd done it once, I actually went back quite a few times to those tracks over the years. Let's talk about some of your uh, adventures then, because the, the book that I actually have in my hand is, is one of yours from a little while ago. It's called Showered in Shale. And this is you going around uh, all, the, all the British tracks 
um, through the course of, of the season. Now, what, what are the stories that stand out in your mind of the, of the people you've met? Because as you say, this is a book where you are speaking to the real people at each track. You're seeing the, 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 the lady who works in the burger bar, the guy on the turnstile, the people raking the tracks. You know, it's not, it's about the whole experience that you encountered, isn't it? Well, it is. And it's also about all the fans with their stories. So um, when I, I mean, I started out doing the book because I sort of failed as a poet. And my poetry teacher, the late Michael Donaghy, said, basically, you know, you're a terrible poet. You put it a bit more politer than that. But you should do something that you have, you know, a personal interest in that means something to you, that you have a genuine curiosity about. And when you go and look into that, uh, you'll probably write a lot better was more or less what he was saying. I mean, whether I did or didn't <laughs> is open to question. But I think uh, I, I've certainly written quite a few words, a couple of million or so, or maybe more than that, of which I always say about three are any good, and most people could agree with me on that. Um, so I started travelling around. I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll go to every track in the country. So having visited all the tracks in the country, and obviously this was back 2005, so some of those tracks are different now, but... Which was your favourite, if you had to pick one? There must be one. That, that's a very tricky question, Ian, in that um, obviously picking favourites, you know, isn't good among your children, and it's certainly not good. <laughs> <laughs> not good. There's, there's many factors that play into it, I suppose, aren't there? There are. Well, you could say that, Ian, and I couldn't possibly comment, but if I did, <laughs> I would say, looking to truly distinctive sort of experiences, I would say I'd strangely go to, say, the Isle of Wight and stand... On Ben's three and four, they've got like, oh, it used to be out of access, maybe they've changed it. They've got a very entrepreneurial promoter down there, Barry Bishop, nowadays. But in the sort of Pav and Crouch era, you could go behind the sort of pits area as public access and you could stand on a sort of bit of sort of derelict ground with flowers growing on it. And that's one of the few banked, banked tracks, or was at the time in the UK, got kind of a steep camber to it and you can stand on the bank and watch the riders come at incredible speed down the straight and into that corner speedway is obviously called speedway and nowadays with highly tuned bikes there is a great emphasis put on speed which i think perhaps is to the detriment of the spectacle and to the riders um, bank balances but not to the tuners Uh, but if you want sheer speed then i mean for example peterborough is incredibly exciting to watch the, the, the speed that riders get up to. I mean, obviously, famously, we say riders get up to 60 and 70 miles an hour on bikes without brakes. But if you look at the track records and the distance of the tracks, that's perhaps a little bit oversold. So let's say at some of the bigger tracks, maybe they get to 50. I don't know. Um, I once went on a speedway bike at Sittingbourne, and when I was doing about 10 miles an hour, it felt like I was doing 1,000 miles an hour. <laughs> so, it's, it's been petrifying, I imagine. It's just, you know, you, it's easy to sit there and, and, and talk about it as a fan, I suppose, isn't it? But then when you actually realise what, uh, what's underneath you, I think it's frightening. Well, my main achievement that day was, was not ending up in a wheelchair. That was where my starting position on the day. And... Um, it was a referee's day, weirdly, and you start on a little practice track, which has got, I mean, the, the key injury you get, I think, is you get splinters, because there's just no way the bike is just drawn to a wooden fence, and you spend the whole time clinging to the fence and unable, really, to turn the corners. But by the time I graduated to the big track, I thought I was flying along at goodness knows what speed, if the wind would have been blowing through my hair if I didn't have a crash helmet on. You had the sort of vibration of the bike. It felt like you were going to get sort of 
white finger like you get if you use a pneumatic drill. Um, so it felt incredibly exhilarating. And then I stood on the side next to the trainer and I watched some person go around at about three miles an hour. And I said to them, well, at least I didn't go as slowly as that. And then they didn't reply. And I thought, well, God, maybe I was going that slow. But anyway, <laughs> it, 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 it did feel very fast. And if you want to get that sheer impression of speed, you know, a track like Peterborough or on the banking there at, um, at the Isle of Wight is good. I mean, personally, I like the back straight at um, Somerset, which, yes. gives, which, yeah. which gives you the chance to do two things at once. I mean, it's a bit like going to watch Fulham Football Club where you could watch on one day you know, the boat race and a football game if you were lucky enough. <laughs> and if you go to Somerset, you can see very good racing at Somerset. It's one of the newer tracks, as we all know. It's uh, you know uh, developed by a local family, um, the Hancocks, uh, on farmland. But you know, it's a great track to go and watch meetings at. It's got a banked back straight. But on the banked back straight, not only can you look down one side and see the racing, but in the gaps between the racing or the track grading or whatever else is going on, you can look in the other direction and look at traffic jams on the M5. And I don't know about you, but I mean, there's, there is a great pleasure to be had in watching other people in a traffic jam, particularly if perhaps they have a caravan with them. Yeah. It's it's certainly a unique selling point that no other club offers. I mean, I go to um, Somerset and you know the Cardiff weekend, like like so many people do for the uh, the um, championship pairs as as it is now, and it's it's always a great experience. You know, it's a nice club. It's very welcoming, as as you say, but and and, and quite different from from so many other clubs as well in certain terms of its surroundings. And if you're lucky enough to get a decent night, it's uh, it's a perfect place to watch Speedway, really. Yeah, and, well, looking at back straights, I mean, the back straight at um, Berwick is very good too because you've got, like, I wouldn't stand under a stand because if you stand under a stand, it amplifies the noise of the bikes as they go around in a sort of era where the silent, we've got better silencers nowadays. Perhaps you want to get that retro feel, you want a bit more noise, so standing under a roof and amplifying the sounds, what you want to do. But at Berwick, you, again, you've got, it's another banked track. Um, yeah, it's just one of those great points to watch from. I mean, genuinely as a fan, it's hard to quibble with the experience at almost any club. I don't want to appear too rose-tinted glasses about the whole thing, but there are real pleasures at any club. I mean, I really liked going to Stoke Speedway. Stoke Speedway's got a sort of uh, sort of main grandstand area overlooking the track. It's got a unique back straight where people in their cars sit and watch the meeting from their cars which i've never kind of understood a bit like say when you go to pool and you watch from behind glass because it's a greyhound <laughs> yes. track it's sort of you know i don't know sort of like uh yeah i don't want to say maybe sex with the condoms fun but perhaps it's better without <laughs> <laughs> and and think speedway from behind glass or in your car it's tricky to salute the riders when they come around on their lap of honor from a car so what they do there is they flash their headlights, or if they're really keen, they wash their window and move their windscreen wipers, which I've got to say is one of the great ways to um, to acknowledge a winning, you know, a good performance by a rider. Um, Jeff, in, in, in the era of social distancing, that, that could be the way forward. Well, maybe we need tracks where you can park up in the car. I mean, obviously, it, I mean, Speedway is going to say it's an outdoor sport, we can we can welcome people along and we can do everything safely. But I mean, 
the, the key aspect of that is all the touch points as you go, as you pay, or as you go to the loo, or as you go to the track shop, or whatever. So while there's the space to distance people, there's perhaps all those shared points, which is something that'll have to be accommodated when we do get running again. But tracks where they could park in their cars, which there aren't so many of, um, you know, that would be a fabulous way to see it. And obviously, you could bring your own sandwiches and. I mean, Speedway people love to bring their own sandwiches, except at clubs that ban them, and their own... I mean, you can't really go to Speedway without a whole set of accessories. I think a garden chair, a flask, Tupperware containers with your own sandwiches and foil. Obviously, your program board. I mean, I think yep. that has been a problem with the rise of the modern program going to a bigger format in some places, because it's often made the program board redundant. Then, equally as going back to when I started watching at Reading, um, you, you have your own homemade program board, you know, that you sort of maybe make in your woodwork class and then varnish. And if you were a Reading Racers fan, you'd stick on your free Reading Racers golf oil sticker on the back and you'd have little things to hold your pen like sort of officious men have in their uh, top pocket of their shirts. Um, when you see them, <laughs> when you get in trouble with people elsewhere, I can I can I can go one uh, one further than that because when I was at school, the um, a guy who was a um, one of the uh, woodwork teachers, um, he was also a big Bradford fan, and he was knocking out these um, wooden football rattles. And he was selling them at the track shop at Bradford, and so you go, and there were these football rattles throughout the whole crowd, and we we knew that it was uh, it was it was the teacher at school that had made them all, and suddenly he started uh, upgrading his car. Yeah, well, that's that's good moonlighting. <laughs> that's well, my granddad was a carpenter, but um, yeah, that's good moonlighting because you know what you can do with offcuts or, or the time you know the skill required to make such a thing. I mean, now you've mentioned rattles, it is kind of a strange thing about speedway in that. I mean, I'm sure they did exist, but I was thinking ahead for this chat. I can't remember if there were air horns in 1975. I've got a feeling there were, but definitely there were rattles. There were sort of speedway scarves. Obviously, the speedway badge has got a very long tradition. Um, not that you can make a noise with the badge unless you stick someone with the pin. <laughs> well, yeah, and those with the bars under it for the years as well. Exactly. I mean, yeah. again, going around the country, I saw people with sort of so many badges on their back that, you know, definitely if they went near a magnet, they'd be in trouble, but they could barely walk with the sort of installed weight of their history. Equally, <laughs> there were the, the car sticker. That's another big one. There was a chap at Eastbourne called Sid Shine, who, when you used to overtake him on the motorways, going back from meetings, he was perhaps of that sort of age where he was doing, say, 55 in the middle lane but he was in a small car that was filled with stickers throughout the back window. So his visibility level was poor anyway. And he would beep and wave an acknowledgement, but I think he was used to so many people beeping, he never really looked up to see that you knew him. But again, the Speedway sticker, you know, I went to Bewley or whatever, that you always saw as a kid. People had Speedway stickers in those days, didn't they? And, yeah, and, and, oh, and I did. Sewn on badges. You know, Body jackets. Yeah, you get them in the, in the in the shop. There's an early picture of me riding my first bike with a a Halifax Dukes body jacket on, and it wasn't just a piece of plastic either. It was like a proper, properly made one. Well, I mean, of course, the uh, nowadays the anorak of choice has to be like the Wolf Sport anorak, which I think yeah. is is made from a sort of at the time it was probably made from a sort of synthetic material 
that was part of the UK space program in that it would, <laughs> it would keep people warm on the moon and uh, or, or perhaps safe in a nuclear accident. But ultimately, these things are going to resist any sort of form of decomposition in sort of landfill, ignoring that people wear them for years with great pride. But they have very distinctive designs, you know, but they've sort of supplanted the sort of more bring your own, make your own sort of ethos of the early 70s, going back to it as being my heyday, um, you know, that people had at that point. I mean, I grew up living around the corner from a Hell's Angel, so I was always... um, kind of au fait with badges and gleaming bikes. But when I went to Speedways, when I got to see them properly in action, you know, for the first time in a sort of glamorous setting, and I can go to the tracks I went to in a second, but returning to my sort of first impressions, I mean, it is, it's a sort of an assault on the senses, isn't it, Speedway? There's the sound, there's the speed. I mean, they say that speed is the sort of, the most common concept of the sort of 20th century, the sort of idea of velocity, the idea of being able to travel distances and so on. And Speedway has it as a microcosm where you get there. The sort of intensity of the minute, the the sound of the bikes, the smell of the fuel and, and methanol, the smell of methanol has changed nowadays, but, uh, and sadly, you can't smell it as much. I believe that's because it's more made from a synthetic compound nowadays rather than perhaps being more vegetable-based as it was in the past. On my travels, if I had a pound for every time someone said to me, well, I don't know if I'd like to read your books, but, you know, if you were selling methanol eau de cologne, I'd buy some. I mean, <laughs> I mean, personally, if they were wearing methanol eau de cologne, you'd be tempted to strike a match if they weren't buying your... Uh... <laughs> and, of course, yeah. methanol burns without flames, doesn't it? Because that's a weird yeah. peculiar thing where you see someone running around like they've got wasps down their knickers. But in fact, it's because the bike's on fire, but you can't see it. I mean, that is one of the great sights, isn't it? Bikes being, flame-free bikes being put out by fire extinguishers. It's not something you see a lot. And then equally... It's so unique, yeah. Don't, don't the, um, uh, the Indy cars in, uh, in America, don't they run on methanol? Or is it the NASCAR? They certainly used to, I think, yeah. Well, I think the IndyCar 500, because... Um, I think BSI, the runners of the Speedway Grand Prix, like to claim they invented the air fence. But when Nigel Mansell was riding over there in 94 and 95, they, they had air fences then by the pit wall, didn't they? So, I mean, that's another thing that's changed in Speedway, obviously the concept of safety. Um, you know, uh, thinking back to Smallmead in 1976 or 1977, the year, year or two after I got au familiar with how everything was going. I mean, Speedway in lots of ways was one of my first ever interactions with, with foreigners or, or at least people with foreign names, you know, they rode for the club, but then equally, you know, Reading would ride against Russia, you know, in a, in a, in a friendly or Gorzhov would come over and ride. So you had all these Eastern European people coming over with their more dilapidated bikes and they would smash into the fence, rip down, say, 30 yards of it, and then pull their bikes out of it and, and sort of not ride on because they've been excluded. But, um, you know, there, there was a certain more sort of rough and ready nature to the thing uh, that, that you don't really um, you yeah. don't quite see so much in an air fence here, which is good for the riders, and we wouldn't want anyone to get injured because, you know, a lot of riders have paid very big prices for our entertainment 
and you know something that can happen in a split second can have consequences for a lifetime and badly impair the quality and enjoyment of their lives just for our entertainment so you know I don't want to make light of people crashing but equally when the Russians and the Poles came over they did seem to spend a lot of time skirting the defence maybe it was the small bijou nature of small need stadium I don't know you're listening to the Humans of Speedway podcast. I'm Ian Brannan, and my guest is Speedway author Jeff Scott in this episode. And before we finish, Jeff is going to put together his ultimate meeting, and he's got a lot of experience because he's travelled to all of the tracks in Great Britain. But not only that, uh, it's been all around Europe as well following the GP series. And let's just talk about that for a moment. When I see some of the tracks abroad, I'm particularly thinking of some of the ones in Sweden where they seem to have an array of concession stalls and they sit on bankings and, and wooden benches. I and mean, What are those sort of stadiums like from your experience? I've been to two lot, two years, two whole series worth of the Speedway Grand Prix. So I've been to all the tracks they have. And that often appears to be something like a sort of Duke of Edinburgh award scheme where you're, they test your compass skills and your ability to get to remote locations in the middle of nowhere <laughs> in various sort of a obscure European the European countries. Um, but looking at Sweden, I think, um, again, I don't want to culturally stereotype, but there is a sort of more community nature. Or, you know, people don't really try and stand out as the big I am in Sweden, I don't think, or Denmark. There's a very much, um, everybody's roughly at the same sort of level. So a typical, as judged by the Speedway Grand Prix tracks, and I'd love to go around to all the tracks in Sweden, um, they tend to be in a forest. They tend to be um, built with rain in mind because um, I don't think they're short of rain over there. Uh, and, yeah, it has sort of more modest benching. I think it has a different range of shots. Last year when I was in Melilla, uh, they confiscated my water as I went in, and I said, well, what should I do for a drink? And the security man said, the water is so pure here you can drink from the toilet. And while that didn't seem quite what I had in mind... <laughs> It was. It was a good suggestion. Um, I do. I think the biggest innovation I saw food-wise uh, in Sweden was uh, again at Melilla, where they have they're selling the chips and the burgers, and then they have these. They were almost right in speedway colour terms. They have like four udders hanging down. So in one, you've got tomato ketchup, the red one. You've got a white one for mayonnaise, and you've got the yellow one for mustard. And quite what if they'd had an extra blue one, that would have just been perfect. But again, I don't suppose blue cheese dressing or whatever that would have to be in that. I don't know if it'd be that popular. I can't imagine there's many Speedway fans that like blue cheese, really. Um, that's just a guess. Uh, looking, 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 say at uh, Poland. I mean, everyone talks about how uh, wonderful, you know, Poland is is a league on the, you know, that everyone's attracted to the riders from a finance and sponsorship point of view, but also from a crowd point of view. And, I mean, all Polish football clubs, speedway clubs, given the nature of sort of Eastern Europe and sort of Iron Curtain countries, uh, Soviet bloc countries, there was a lot of sort of community pride in your club. So if you were your the state or the local council would invest in their speedway stadia and give it to their football club or rent it out at bargain rates to people. So I think we talk about 
why don't we emulate what's happening in Poland? But we sort of misunderstand the sort of ownership basis of the stadiums because in the UK, we've always been sort of adventitiously involved with Greyhound tracks, rugby league tracks and so on. They're the Reading club historian, Arnie Gibbons, has got a very good theory about looking at uh, the rise Greyhounds arriving in the country in 1962 as one of the big drivers of new speedway tracks because you can't run Greyhounds every night, so you need uh, events to subcontract to use to maximise the use of the stadium. Um, but coming back to, to more to your question, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a certain shared language language and vernacular of Speedway, irrespective of the language that's spoken. I do mm-hmm. think at a club level, I'm not so sure at sort of more glamorous, big international event level, because that attracts a different type of audience. Um, although still an older audience, uh, I think at a club level, there is very much, yeah, there doesn't seem to be too much difference. When, when I went to Germany, where um, I went to a couple of locations there, there seems to be a real thing of bringing your own swimming float along. And you think, well, that's a, that's a weird thing. But it turns out that they don't really have much seating. They tend to have sort of more rough-hewn stepped terraces. So anyone, right. so anyone in their right mind is going to bring their own swimming float or yeah. a deluxe version with sort of handles on the side. Got yeah, yeah. Um, Garden furniture, you can't really go wrong with that anywhere. Um, if you go to Halstavik in Sweden, it seems to be set in some sort of, I don't know, maybe a Game of Thrones. They could stage that there. It's very rocky, outcroppy sort of place, where, again, comfortable things to sit on is, is really the way to go. Waterproof clothing is always good at any speedway meeting, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think what we what we're dis- discovering there is that the uh, wherever you go in Speedway, you, you're never going to be going far wrong if you take some garden equipment with you. No, and um, although you see again, there's um, there's because it's more egalitarian, I think, in a funny way in Sweden or some Scandinavian and Nordic countries. Again, to just talk in cliches, uh, and when you go into Melilla, they even though I think it. For example, at the Grand Prix, it's rained at every one bar one, and yet they've still managed to stage them all bar one due to the great drainage of the of the track. But they confiscate your umbrellas as you go in. And yet, while nothing's cheap in Sweden, they sell very good sort of Kugul Pacamax that you can get for about the equivalent of two quid. So we can all, uh, in different colours as well, depending on your colour choice. And we can all sit there in sort of very bovine fashion getting soaked in the rain, waiting for something to happen, wearing bargain cagoules. And, you know, maybe there's uh, maybe that could be the way forward for British Speedway, bargain cagoules, I don't know. Knockdown cagoules could be the... Uh, yeah, get them branded by Wolf Sport. Well, exactly. I, there I don't you know go. If, if Wolf Sport are the future, I mean, the riders nowadays have sort of got a little bit fancier and having their own logos and numbers, uh, as if... You know, it's sort of like some sort of druid ceremony, isn't it, with all the numbers the riders have or a sort of complicated trigonometry problem. And um, maybe that does get mind share when your number, you know, whatever. I mean, the only number that springs to anyone's mind, I think, is Jason Doyle's number. <laughs> yes. OK. And on that note, uh, this is the Humans of Speedway podcast. I'm Ian Brannan. I'm joined by author Jeff Scott. Uh, who's got lots of experience of visiting every speedway track there is in Britain and increasingly more across Europe as well. And right now it's time to come up with your speedway paradise, where we design 
your ultimate meeting in the ultimate location with the ultimate people. And with all your knowledge, this should be pretty straightforward. So your first question, Jeff, which track would you be holding it on? Which bit of shale? Yeah, I mean, I think in the UK, we can all pick the obvious best track at the moment would be Bellevue, which I think is a fabulous track to watch Speedway at. But again, you've got to sort of, I think you've always got to dance with the person who brought you. So I'm going to pick, even though it wouldn't be everyone's choice, Small Mead. Uh, the track at Smallmead, because that was my first experience of Speedway. I didn't know any different. That, you know, fired my imagination and a lifelong love of the sport. Okay, Smallmead for the track then. And and which stadium would Smallmead's track go in for this event? As it's nowadays just uh, been raised to the ground and it's a car park. I mean, strangely, I'd probably put it in Smallmead Stadium circa 1975, I'm afraid to mm. say. If that's, that's probably a little bit boring of me, but... To maybe approach the question slightly differently, something that, again, doing my books is perhaps um, something I got familiarity with because I had to find all these speedway tracks. But I would say, I don't know about you, but if you commute a lot in a car, you get to sort of like certain sections of the UK motorway and detest other sections. Mm-hmm. Yet, yet the drive to speedway, I think, almost irrespective of which club you're going to, I think... And I think a lot of people do drive to go rather than go on a bus or public transport because they're not so amenable to those things in the UK, although some tracks are. Um, you, I think the anticipation you get going there is, is, is something, you know, really quite notable about the sport. And I've always been a Reading Racers fan, but obviously they shut down. And because of where I moved to, Eastbourne became my adopted club and I've been going there many years. And generally, one of the most beautiful drives, just from a driving point of view, is through the countryside in the last, say, five miles towards Arlington Stadium. You know, the bluebells are at a certain time of year, they're high hedges, it's sort of, you collect country roads. And yet the idea when you get there, you're going to watch some sort of harem, scarum, thriller minute type meeting, I think is, is, is all part of the experience. So... It's important that the track is where is the stage on which it's set and the stadium is the surroundings in which you enjoy it. Um, but the drive there is very significant. And obviously the drive back, unless you get caught behind an old age pensioner, which there can be quite a few leaving a speedway stadium. <laughs> um, obviously everyone drives quicker on the way home. Having just been to the speedway, everyone comes out like a sort of bat out of hell. Yeah. Clutch starts out of the car park. Yeah, well, yeah, if you can. <laughs> um, I must honourably mention when you're saying where would I set it, I do think Eastbourne is a, um, is a fabulous um, location. But again, you get, I can't tell whether that's the innate quality of the thing or my familiarity, but I've had many enjoyable evenings there. Speedway in darkness under lights or as dusk falls or whatever, being in the country. Yeah, there's something sort of timeless about it. A fuse between all of those three, then. There we are. So sorry not to answer <laughs> it accurately. How how about the team then? If you were to pick an, an all time one to seven, what would be the names? Yeah. Now this is sort of. I don't want to appear like a sort of um, only going for the show ponies, but obviously I'm going to have to say my first sort of rider that was thrilling to see was Anders Michinek. So he has to be in the team. Yeah. Um, picking an Eastbourne rider, there was genuinely no rider in my era of watching Speedway Eastbourne who was more exciting to watch than Martin Dugard. Um, 
And weirdly, though, it, it, the most exciting meeting I ever saw Martin Dugard in was the one where he was the wild card uh, at Coventry in a Grand Prix and won. That was, that was genuinely yeah. amazing. Another, another rider, so that's two, another rider has to be the most box office rider of his generation, so that has to be Nicky Pedersen. And again, when he used to come down to, when he rode for Wolves, and um, against Eastbourne, I mean, he really took no prisoners. And there is something exciting about sort of riders in a certain part of their career, I think. And he, he yeah, I mean, he could cause an argument in the phone box, it seems. <laughs> and he, you know, he, people would not remain indifferent to him being on the track. And it is important to say, obviously, people say, oh, he's a dirty rider. But it's a bit like the definition of an alcoholic, which an alcoholic is someone who drinks the same amount as you, but you don't like them. And a dirty rider is very much in the eyes of the beholder. I think he is perhaps aggressive on the track. But as a spectator, I mean, obviously, we're not riding. That makes for a fabulous uh, experience. Um, if you were looking perhaps for the sort of Pele or Maradona or Eusebio of, and again, I've only watched since 1975, so I don't know that much really about Speedway. I mean, Thomas Golob has to be, has to be, um, yeah, just, I think, on most people's lists. But as I yeah. say, it sounds like I'm only choosing top Well, no, I mean, this, it, there's no points limit. So you, it's, it's your all-time team that you would love to see together. And so far, we've got Michinek, Dugard, Pedersen and Golub. It's, it's looking pretty strong. Yeah, and then the next, my other three, I'm going to say I think there's a certain, there's a certain point in a rider's career. There's certain, throughout all the years when I went around writing those books, went around to all the tracks, I would try and time it so that I could go and watch the up-and-coming rider of that year. So there's certain, in every year, there's a couple of riders, I think, in, in Britain, and I'm sure it's the same in Sweden and Poland, who are just sort of young and they're experienced enough to be sort of thrilling to watch, and they're sort of young enough still to be daredevil. And you would just almost travel, you know, huge distances to watch them. So although we won't make my uh, one to seven, I mean, Lewis Bridger around Weymouth, was, was brilliant to watch. I mean, at Conference League at the time, he was sort of young and wild and whatever. He was very exciting to watch. I think the Isle of Wight attracted um, exciting riders. I think Jason Doyle was very exciting when he was there. He also wouldn't be in my one to seven. But So I'm going to say the riders that were really, you would pay good money to watch when they were sort of in their youthful pomp, and I think that's often the time when riders are the most exciting, would be, Chris Holder, yeah, who was fabulous, I think. Um, and then, strangely, because Australia suddenly appeared to have a great production line of these things, I would also choose Darcy Ward. You know, Darcy Ward was also, um, you know, worth the, the proverbial admission money on his own. I didn't see him in his later years when he was at Pool or whatever, or even watching that much on the Grand Prix. But when he was starting out, his sort of Kings Lynn thing, I mean, you would... Kings Lynn was like a sort of mecca for watching Speedway, wasn't it? And it is a, is a very well-run club, I think. Um, and then Ty Woofenden was amazing to watch both at Scunthorpe and even at Rye House. Yeah. You know, so you would... So, 
I think you follow your clubs, but when you're sort of a neutral, you go if you go to a meeting and you've got no skin in the game in terms of supporting a club, certain riders just sort of grab you by the collar at a certain stage of their career and lead you around by it. So I could pick a, a side of a team of more worthy riders and more interesting riders maybe, but all of those have something to recommend them. And I would pick definitely Ward Holder and Woofenden for, for a certain era of their careers. That's a, it's a strong team, is that, isn't it? Yeah. Michinek, Dugard, Nicky Pedersen, Thomas Gollum, Chris Holder, Darcy Ward, Ty Woofenden. I think in their, in their prime, I don't think uh, anybody would beat that. Oh, I mean, <laughs> sort of, yeah, I mean, that is a bit sort of like, mind you, you know, all teams fundamentally uh, are successful, I think, based on the sort of backroom engine of these things. So if you were looking at, say, an Eastbourne era of a certain era, Eastbourne team of a certain era, David Norris was a very exciting rider. Dean Barker, Adam Shields at a certain point, he was very exciting to watch with the Isle of Wight. He came... He was a Eastbourne. He's a sort of when he got to a sort of elite league, he was sort of seemed to be less tough on people. But in the Premier League, he was he took no prisoners, did he? So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, lots of riders. I think you're unlucky if you go to a meeting and someone doesn't stand out and catch your eye. So I think that's one of the joys about Speedway that while the production line of British riders might not be coming through. That there is still fund. I don't think Speedway has got better or worse. I think a thrilling Speedway race is a close contest between evenly matched riders rather than strung out like a line of washing. But even if it's strung out like a line of washing and you see some sort of young talent on a bike going through impossible gaps, you know, uh, yeah, that's thrilling. I mean, the best it's exciting, race, isn't it? The best race I think I've ever seen at. Um, at Eastbourne, maybe, was um, Jason Crump and Nicky Pedersen. I don't think they had much, uh, there wasn't much love lost between them, I don't think. And they rode handlebar to handlebar, sort of an, a sort of noble on their hand grip apart from each other, overtaking and re-overtaking each other for four laps. I mean, truly, truly exhilarating. For riders, I've said that they should name their ideal pit crew, their ultimate pit crew. But I guess you being a supporter, I'm going to change it slightly and open it up to the commentary box because you'll need a commentator for this Speedway meeting of a lifetime, this fantasy event. Who is going to be uh, calling the action for you? I mean, I think if you look at all the people who do DVDs, there's some very distinctive, very good commentators out there. Well, the late Bob Tasker, I thought, was very good. I think Steve Girdwood has a very distinctive style of presentation uh david rose come on a long way i think you could listen to him obviously um you've got pete ballinger and ken burnett uh but the commentator that's really standing out and particularly in this lockdown era the best thing the best way to experience speedway at the moment seems to be watch edinburgh monarchs tv emtv where they pick and curate their meetings very well and you get to listen to mike hunter who does many tasks uh, many jobs at uh Edinburgh and I think he's got he would be my choice because he mixes sort of the sort of knowledge enthusiasm and insight and candor in a way that sort of supplements the action that doesn't sort of overwhelm it. This one is is a bit of a tricky one for you but we're giving you the opportunity in your fantasy meeting to change one rule of Speedway now if you could change one rule what would it be? 
That's a tricky one. But weirdly, if I was British Speedway, I would secede from being, I don't know if it's possible, uh, secede from being managed by the FIM. Right, okay. And there we are, there's a random... <laughs> <laughs> and do your own thing. Well, I think there could be a case for saying that. Um, you know, this era of sort of uh, the virus is going to change the way we do everything. So unless radical ideas are on the horizon, whether it's screaming meetings... Um, changing the way the number of riders in a meeting may be, the way clubs are con constituted, how you get new riders coming through, unless everything's up for a sort of analysis, you know, fiddling with the team average limits or the colour helmets or the um, whatever might be being fiddled with, probably isn't going to attract the audience of the future. So I think going our own way, I'm not sure what benefits the FIM bring to British Speedway. That is quite a big rule change, quitting the FIM, but uh, there we have it. So on the rule book front, who would be the referee for this meeting then? Three refs to share it together. They're all going to do five heats each if it's a British league meeting. <laughs> okay. Or if it's a Grand Prix, it's 23 heats. So I don't know. I mean, maybe they could have a sort of whoever makes the best decisions could do the semi-final and the final. So I would choose Chris Derno, Chris Gay and Christina Turnbull. I would also give an honorary mention to um, obviously to Tony Steele and I think there is a good case for asking who are the most famous vegetarians in Speedway apart from Tony Steele who um, are the most vegeta famous vegetarians in Speedway yeah I mean do we know of any vegetarian Speedway riders I mean they're all trying to diet their way to success now but so I imagine quinoa is a bit more on people's menu than it used to be but um, maybe Tony should get into sort of nutrition as well as being you know, the, uh, ah. the referee's referee. Tony Steele has had a few mentions on this podcast uh, in this particular category. He does seem to be a favourite, but he's never been mentioned as being a, a dietitian as well. So an extra string to his bow there. Final question for you, Jeff, then. Who would be the opposition for your team of all-stars in your ultimate meeting then? Well, funny enough, it would be a bit like a testimony. It would have to be the Reading team of uh, 1975, which I could name off the top of my head dead easy. So that would be um, Anders Michinek again, uh, John Davis, Bent Jensen, Bernie Lee, good old Bernie Lee, Bob Humphreys, Mick Bell and Richard May. So that, that team is, um, yeah, that's, that's the best team that I could think of to race against them. And, and, and they'll probably have home advantage as well. Well, well they would, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think all the makings there of a fantastic uh, meeting, and it's been uh, fascinating hearing some of your stories as well. I know you've got plenty more, so maybe we can catch up again another time. But uh, my thanks to you, Jeff Scott. Well, it's been very nice talking to you, Ian. My thanks to Jeff Scott for joining me on this episode of the Humans of Speedway podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you'd like to check out more of Jeff's work, you can find all of his books at methanolpress.com. And of course, don't forget to check out the other episodes in this series, including chats with Nigel Pearson and Scott Nichols. And don't forget, you can give us a rating and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts as well. And you'll also get future episodes straight to your device. Plus, if you'd like to leave us a comment or suggest names you'd like to hear on future podcasts, it'd be great to hear from you too, and we'll see what we can do. Meanwhile, see you next time on Humans of Speedway.
Social Podcast Network.